You are listening to Booth One. Gary Zabinski, your host here with a year-end edition of Booth One. And joining me as my co-host today is the returning Frank Taranjo, who's quickly becoming the most sought-after co-host in the business. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> How are your holidays, Frank? They were great. We just got back from Palm Springs, so they were probably warmer than most people listening to this podcast. No doubt. It's brumal outside. I learned that word from my word-a-day calendar the other day. It means wintry from the Latin. This is your third time on the booth, which I think ties you with Tom Hanks and Steve Martin. Ah. Oh, oh, no, that's Saturday Night Live. So you went to Palm Springs for Christmas. We did. Yeah, absolutely. You texted me and said you were staying at Ray Bradbury's house. Is this possible? It is possible, and it was great because he lived there when, I think for 30 years when he had a house in Palm Springs, and there are pictures of him on the wall. There's two typewriters in two of the bedrooms. I don't know if they're his typewriters, but the old kind of uh, manual typewriters, so they could be typewriters that he wrote Wow. on. You know, the furniture is old-fashioned. I'm wondering if it was his furniture. What's definitely original is the interior itself. It's not been upgraded. It's not been modernized. Everything works perfectly fine, but I know it looked exactly like it did when he lived there. The appliances in the kitchen? Appliances in the kitchen were like a light 1950s pink. Mm. Um, (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah, but it's kind of a famous house, and people can go online and look at it. You know, Ray Bradbury is from Waukegan, which is just up the road here. I I worked in Waukegan for a number of years. In fact, uh, the town that he wrote about was called Greentown, and that was named for or Waukegan, which has you know tons and tons of trees and uh-huh. a beautiful green town, or at least it used to be. Did you find this online? Was it a, it was a, at, a house um, rental online? One of those house rental places. Can house. you stay at other people's famous houses, like Frank Sinatra? Has uh, a house we have there, stayed right? at uh, Cary Grant's house. Really? Yeah, we did. Judy, Judy, Judy. Exactly, yeah. So it's, it's kind of fun. Well, I'm delighted to welcome a couple of additional guests mm-hmm. today, Frank, yes. to the program. Uh, we have a full house in the studio. It's standing room only, SRO, as it they is. say. First, we have Nelson Rodriguez. Nelson is the artistic director of an organization called Pride Films and Plays right here in Chicago. Nelson's an actor, uh, a writer, a voiceover artist. Some of his credits include Some Men, The Children's Hour, and... Uh, You'll have to tell me a little more about this, Nelson. Men on the verge of a Hispanic breakdown. H-I-S dash panic breakdown. It was a one-man show for which you were nominated for a Joseph Jefferson Award, right? It was, yeah. Tell me the nature of what this show is about. So it's a comedic piece. I mean, it is over no. the top. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's a one-man show, so essentially it's seven characters. All of them are gay immigrants in the United States. All played by you. All played by me. Seeing the circumstances, they find themselves in uh, double displaced in the United States. They're not citizens and of the United States. And also, as gay men, they also, at the time when this was written, a lot of didn't have a lot of rights. So Guillermo Reyes, who wrote the piece in the early 90s, did a great job of just breezing through these stories in a very comedic way. So you laugh with these men, and then you start to empathize with them, even though their situation and experience might be completely different from yours. Yeah. You start to really realize that they're not. And uh, it's such a beautiful piece. Cool. I'd love to see it. Are you going to be doing it again anytime soon that you're nope. aware of? No. no plans as of... No. <laughs> Flat out, no. No plans. No plans. No 
plans, uh, but I have remounted it twice in the past, so who knows? Who knows? Well, additional credits here in Chicago for you include the Oak Park Theater Festival's The Fair Maid of the West. So you know uh, my good friend and friend of the show, Kevin Tice. I do. He's a nice guy, isn't he? He's the he? best, yeah. Yeah, he's Fantastic. the greatest. You're also a voiceover talent heard on radio, national TV, and online media. Stop blushing. I'm just going to read a little bit more. And this drives me crazy. In 2016, the Windy City Times named you one of the 30 under 30, which recognizes members of the LGBTQ plus youth community under 30 years old. You're by far the youngest person at this table. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I, I, I probably wow. will tease you about that as the whole program <laughs> goes on. Well, welcome to the program, Nelson. Great to have you here. In addition to Nelson, we have filmmaker Dan Powell with us today. Dan is a director, screenwriter, producer, film professor, and a festival programmer, and has worked extensively with Pride Films and Plays, which we're going to talk about quite a lot in the coming minutes. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm Great. Good to be here, Gary. Full disclosure, why don't you tell our listeners what your relationship to Frank Taranjo is? <sighs> He's this guy <laughs> that's been hanging around in my life He's a millstone. for almost 30 years. He's a millstone around mm. your neck. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's been really hard to shake him, but we will be celebrating 29 years next June, or I guess this June. 29 years. Yeah. yeah. Have you joined... Frank, or has Frank joined you on the festival circuit we were talking about? Last time you oh, were on yeah, the program, yeah, yeah. we were talking yes. about Telluride and Toronto a little bit. We go to those festivals together. We also go to the festivals where dance films are right. playing. Tell us a little bit more, Nelson, about the Pride Films and Plays and the Pride Arts Center, which is here in Chicago, uh, recently established. I think it's in the old Profiles Theater building on Broadway. Tell us a little bit about the history and the origin of both these organizations. Pride Films and Plays was founded by David Zack in 2011. Well-known artistic director, all about theater guy here Mm -hmm. in Chicago. It began because he had spent some time in Korea, and he was watching gay films while he was over there, and he was like, man, these are all terrible. Why can't anyone (laughs) produce good gay content? And so when he moved back to Chicago, or came back to Chicago after his um, job there, he started Pride Films and Plays. Um, ever since, they've begun done everything from Full Seasons, our first short film, dozens of contests for writers, trying to find the next great play, musical. So the organization has grown slowly over the past couple of years, and recently, about a year ago, we moved into Pride Arts Center. They were kind of gypsy for a while, right? They've mm-hmm. rented various venues all over the city until they finally got their own space. Yeah. So... David Zack started this in 2011. We founded all of this. So uh, you produce your own plays there as well. Uh, Is there something going on there now? There is. We are going to open a premiere to Chicago. It's called Yank, the World War II Love Story. Okay. And it's a really beautiful piece. It's uh, classic Broadway-style music about two soldiers who meet and fall in love in the midst of World War II. We've had our first friends and family run through. So it was the first time that they ran, the actors ran all the way through the show. We had about 30 people in the audience and it was no sets, no lights, no costumes, just the actors performing the piece and it was already really beautiful. There's two spaces I know at the new Pride space. And is it the larger one or the smaller one? It is the larger one. So there are two spaces at Pride Arts Center. There's the Broadway, which seats about 90, and then with the Buena, which seats about 60. Hmm. But we are going to be in the larger space. Great. 
Dan, you are instrumental in helping program film for Pride Film and Plays. You've got a festival coming up. Well, we used to have a Queer Bits Film Festival, which essentially it was twice a year where we would show short LGBTQ film. And, and that's something that Nelson actually started and was instrumental in getting off the ground a few years ago, which is actually how I first got involved with Pride Films and Plays because one of my short films played in one of the first uh, Queer Bits Film Festivals. Subsequently, what we decided to do is we, we decided to do this as a monthly festival. So the second Tuesday of every month, we have a night of short films, and sometimes a little bit longer than short. Some, some of them are like, you know, something 45 minutes to an hour, but essentially it's a night of short films. And the idea is, is to bring people in once a month, see some really good quality LGBT films that they can't see anywhere else. These essentially would be Chicago premieres of these films. And it's been great because a lot of the festivals that I've gone to with my own film is where I've found a number of films that we are now also uh, going to be showing in our festivals. We've had three so far. The next one is on Tuesday, uh, January 9th. Coming up uh, right uh, in a couple of days. Right around the corner. Essentially, what we did at this point was we had a bunch of uh, submissions, and we had programmed the festival through January, and we are just now announcing our films that are going to be playing from February through May. On the average, how many submissions do you get? 103 submissions, and, uh, you know, we only have slots for so many. uh, Yeah, how many uh, slots are you looking at? You know, like, for this one on Tuesday, we've got eight short films that we're going to be showing. And also, we've we've shown a lot of different types of films. Some of these are documentaries, some of them are... Uh, dramas, comedies, you know, music videos. There's a couple that will be coming up in, in the next couple months that are uh, focused on they have horror elements. I mean, there's some really, really cool things. Gay horror is a genre? And yeah, there's a... It is there, now. Yeah, <laughs> Apparently it is so. now, but... There is a there is definitely a, a gay genre for everything that you can imagine. Your Nelson, artistic director of Pride Films and Plays, how do you help curate these films, and and how do you choose them? Is there does it go through as most film festivals would? Is there a committee? Everybody watches them, and and what sort of criteria are you looking for? From my end. Um, I'm one of the one of the people on the committee that screens the films. I think I this last time I ended up watching maybe about twenty short mm-hmm. films. Yeah, essentially that's my input. So Dan takes what each person in the committee has to say, how they rank the film. We talk about everything from originality to performances to pace to cinematography, and then give him comments about our final score for it and whether or not we think it should be presented as part of the festival. Yeah, and you know we're really trying to balance out the LGBT. Q and anything else. Ideally, we would like to have, you know, nights that really include that entire alphabet. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes we don't get as many lesbian films or sometimes we don't get as many trans films, which are harder to find and good quality films about transgender characters are oftentimes really hard hard to find. So it's it, it's a little bit of a balancing act with all the things that Nelson mentioned and and length is a big part of it, but I definitely I look at what everybody had said what their ratings were for each of the films and then you know try to give slots to those that got the highest ratings and try to fill in from there and dan how many would you say you watched i know different people watch 10 12 20 whatever 
but I know you kind of need to <laughs> be aware of some of these films. If, you know, they're all listeners. Sort of Dan's face is inscrutable. Yeah. I can't well, quite describe it. I mean, I, I've seen just about all of them. There's a couple <laughs> that I didn't um, because I had enough committee members that had seen them. But usually, if there's something that is getting some really good reviews, or on the opposite side, if it's not good and it's and or if it's mixed, which is a whole other matter, then you know I got to look at it. But generally, I try to look at all of them. Uh, I need to do a shout out here to some of our listeners. Frank, have you ever seen Cheetah Rivera in concert? We I, have. Yeah, we, we were at um, the uh, Carlisle. Fi- Michael Feinstein. Feinstein's Fifty Four Below. Yeah, yeah. Sitting next to David Hyde Pierce and the cast of a show he was in because Broadway was on strike at the time. So curtains. he took his entire yeah he was in curtains, play curtains, curtains. Sure. And uh, the show was on strike as were most of them at that time. So he took the entire cast out and they were all sitting at the next table. Too. Cheetah made an appearance here in Chicago recently on uh, December 11th. She was in an evening with Seth Rudetsky, who's the kind of the Broadway maven guy. It was a format in which we saw, uh, my producer and I saw Audra McDonald several months ago, where they just show up with Seth and they sing some songs, they sit in some chairs and do a little chat, not unlike what we're doing here. And then they get up and sing some more songs. Cheetah was there with Seth, and this was a couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned, on December 11th. Well, I wanted to do a shout-out to a few of our listeners who went to the show. Uh, We passed on it, and in fact, we gave our tickets to one of our friends. And I I need to read some of their comments because uh, this is sort of uh, feedback, again, from our listeners. This is from Virginia Gerst, who was a longtime theater critic here in town. Seth Rudetsky introduced Cheetah Rivera as a triple threat, but quadruple is more like it. She's pushing pushing 85. Wow, oh my goodness. And looking trim, fit, and just plain fabulous in a black velvet pantsuit. Of course, uh, of course. Which is perfect for her. Yep. Two-time Tony winner lit up the Steppenwolf stage with a 100-minute mix of song and conversation that covered her long career from being a ballet dancer picked out of an audition line by George Balanchine. Wow. Uh, to the visit, which she debuted here at, at the Goodman Theater in which 2001. Which we saw, actually. We saw it, yeah. uh, I hear she was quite Remarkable. Oh, yeah, she was. She was. The show was okay, okay. but she was great. (laughs) Rudetsky was a perfect host, says Virginia, for such a program, drawing out tales based on his encyclopedic Broadway knowledge. (laughs) This from another listener of ours, longtime listener and loyal one, uh, Nancy Needles. First, when she walked on stage, it was as if a Klieg light had been turned on. She can really light up a room. I totally agree. There's something just... She's got it, Mm -hmm. don't you think, Frank? Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever that is. Yeah, she's amazing. She did numbers like Class from Chicago, and there's got to be something better than this from Sweet Charity. And in the encores, she did Nowadays from Chicago and was just brilliant as she went back and forth singing as Gwen Verdon, and she sounded just like her. Ah. This is from Nancy. For years, Frank and I used to co-teach this course uh, out of the College of DuPage called Broadway Bound, where we would take mostly adults, to New York to see Broadway shows. And the year that we saw Nine, which Cheetah was in, my mother had gone on that particular trip as she went on many of them with us. And my mother is a big 
laugher. She's a she responds to things. And we were sitting, I think, in the front row. Bright blonde hair, can't miss her. Right. And so after the show was over, because a lot of these people wanted to go and meet the stars, we went to the stage door where they're all coming out, and Cheetah was essentially being whisked away into her limo. And my mother's yelling, Cheetah, Cheetah, Cheetah <laughs> turned around got out of the limo, went up to my mother and said, I remember you. And she gave her a big kiss. And then she went into her limo. <laughs> Fabulous Isn't story. Isn't that great? great? Yeah. And that's also very cheetah, too, because it was a Sunday afternoon show when usually everyone is dashing off because they don't have Monday shows, and so they're going to get as much time off as they can. Because Cheetah Rivera's come out and signed autographs and taken pictures with people. She's one of those Broadway people who really likes her audience. But in this case, she probably had to catch a plane or something. But you can't miss Harriet, and so she had to come out and uh, give her special attention. Nelson, Mr. 30 Under 30, you you, you know who we're talking about, don't you? I've heard that name. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, yes. (laughs) Ever seen Cheetah live? I haven't, no. It's not too late. She's still out there. Still kicking. Finally, this from another loyal listener and great fan of the show, Kay Elwine. She can still shimmy like a youngster and move those nimble feet and hips. Nimble in mind as well, for she avoided any temptation to gossip about her very public friends and fellow performers. This is something I've known about her. You know, we've had Cheetah on the show. I know. We recorded her in a hotel room in New York. And she could not have been nicer. And she did, in fact, avoid any concept of gossip or talking behind Mm -hmm. someone's back, telling us Gwen Verdon stories or bad Jerome Robbins stories. Class act. Well said, Frank, a class act. A fabulous night, she says, not like any stage presentation I have yet seen. I kind of wish now we hadn't given away the tickets. Yeah. (laughs) Hello, my phone didn't ring. (laughs) No, it did not, did it? It did not. It did not, but I'm here. Something I have to ask you and Dan about, this is going back to your recent trip to Palm Springs. You also Mm -hmm. then did a little side trip to San Diego, and you saw something at La Jolla Playhouse. You said you were going to see this on our last program, Frank, and And finally you did. You saw Summer, the Donna Summer musical. We did. Is it Summer with an exclamation point? It's Summer with a colon, I think. Oh, okay. (laughs) And... It's very enjoyable. I would recommend anybody seeing it if you're at all a fan. The musical numbers are terrific. They're wonderfully staged. The choreography is great. So every time a song comes on, the whole place just lights up. And it's all Donna Summer songs. It There's is all Donna Summer songs. Nothing original. Yeah, no. I think there were a couple songs couple I didn't recognize. Ones, yeah. I wonder if they wrote them for the show or they were just off some obscure album. But, uh, you know, you've got your hot stuff and your bad girls and dim all the lights. Oh, they make a big production out of Love to Love You Baby because mm. that was her first big hit. Mm. And, you know, it shows the difference between her being brought up very religious and then dumped into this sex role because when Love to Love You Baby came out, it had all the moans and groans. And so she then became this ultimate sex symbol of the sexy 70s, and she was never comfortable with that. The two criticisms that I have of it Yeah, I I had a feeling there were going to be a couple of criticisms. I mean, first of all, it's totally enjoyable. We had a great time. It's only 90 minutes long, and they take a lot of it from her book that Donna Summer wrote this autobiography 
And so there's a lot of narration to the audience. They do an interesting thing. They have three different Donnas. They have the young girl Donna, they have the, at the beginning of her career Donna, and then they have the mature diva Donna. Which one does LaShawns play? LaShawns plays the mature diva Donna, but we did not see her. We saw the understudy, who I thought was fantastic. Mm. She really looked like Donna Summer. So the, the problem with the book is the fact that because there's so much narration, they tell rather than show, and the scenes that they show are really good. When she has conflicts with various people, those are good, but then the characters come out and they're like, so then this happened and this happened and this happened. They could flesh out more of those scenes because I thought those were really very good. The other criticism, and I understand why they're doing this, but <laughs> do you, I don't do you, think do it you works. Agree, do you agree with that? I know that exactly Dan, where yeah. he's going. Show, this. don't do. tell. And my only other thing about that too is that there was a little too much telling of her past, and I think that's where the show kind of lags a little bit. I think what people they want to they want to hear all the Donna Summer hits. Sure. Well, my other criticism is, and I think you probably agree, they do an interesting thing with the show. Most of the roles are played by women, even the male roles. Um, they do sort of some gender bending, like Giorgio Moroder is played by a woman. They're kind of minor roles, and then most of the choruses are done by women, kind of dressed up like I guess they're going for sort of that '70s androgynous look. But here's the problem with that. The audience is mostly going to be women and gay men. And I'm sorry, they want to look at hot guys if they are going to go see a Donna Summer musical. That's just common sense to me. Well, speaking of icons, I wanted to mention something else that happened in just the last couple of weeks. On December 18th, they did a memorial concert for Barbara Cook. Oh. And I'll just give you a couple of highlights. Renee Fleming saying Uh-oh. hello young lovers oh. i'd have paid good money to hear that oh, kelly o'hara sang she was a longtime friend of barbara cook who also served as a mentor audra mcdonald also sang and they talked quite a lot about barbara cooks and i did not know this she had an obsession with hugh jackman really she she saw the <laughs> boy from oz 15 <laughs> times oh my god <laughs> i wonder if hugh knows Apparently, Frank Langella became a very, very dear friend of Barbara Cook's later in life, and uh, he gave a very stirring and moving tribute to her in uh, many of his closing comments. So, we loved you, Barbara Cook. Uh, I shall miss her. She did a lot of, wasn't she, in the original Candide? She was in a lot of original productions. Of course, uh, music band. She sort of did what Shirley Jones did in the movies. She kind of did the Broadway version. Without question, she absolutely did. Nelson, I wanted to ask you, you're in a new film. You're in a new feature film. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Um, So, yeah, so the film is called En Algún Lugar, um, translated, that's a place to be. The film is actually mostly in English. It's not mostly in Spanish, uh, but the Spanish title is kind of taken uh, lead. We filmed in Mexico and in Chicago. We were in Mexico for eight days and then shot in Chicago over the course of several months. It was in post-production for about a year. They reshot some scenes, added some scenes. And it recently premiered at Reeling Film Festival here in Chicago. So we are very proud that it was included and accepted awesome. into that festival. You, uh, are you going to show it? Yeah, at we're going to show Films? it as part of the Pride Film Festival sometime during the next four months. And Dan and I have both seen it. It's excellent. Dan, mm-hmm. let's talk about your film okay. career. You created a trilogy of films called, correct me if I'm wrong, the Scotty and Josh trilogy. Is that what it's known as? Well, that's what it's known as now. Yeah, it originally began as one short film, Scotty, Scotty Works, Works Out. Out. After the success of that film, it played at a bunch of film festivals all over the country, decided to write another script 
with the idea that I really wanted to work with those two actors again. And we originally developed it as two completely separate characters. And then I said, okay, well, let's, you got, I forget what we called them originally, like, you know, Peter and George or something. And I said, you know, why don't you read this script as if you were doing it as Scotty and Josh again? And they did, and it totally worked. And so we made the second film, and then once we did that, we thought, okay, well, we got to, like, finish up this trilogy, and it became a trilogy. So we did a third film called Another Party with Scotty. Well, I haven't seen the whole trilogy, because okay. that's, a, that's a commitment, Right there. Well, they're only, they're, only uh, they're about 15 half hour commitment. Yeah, they're Gary. about 15 minutes long. I, I'm aware Gary. of that. I just watched Scotty Works Out. Oh. Now, I'll tell you that I am not your core audience, but I enjoyed the film uh, oh, immensely. Thanks. And if I can just recap for our listeners yeah. what it is about, uh, Scotty is working out yeah. at his local gym, it's a right. small gym. And he's riding a bicycle, and most of this film kind of takes place in his head, at least the early part of the film. Mm-hmm. And he's looking around, looking at various men working out and wondering what they are and what they do, and he has nicknames for them. My favorite one is Tattoo Guy, <laughs> mostly because a little bit later on he has this fantasy sequence where he actually meets each of them (laughs) but he doesn't really meet each of them he's just thinking about it and he shows up next to the tattoo guy with what do you call that when your whole arm is tattooed as a sleeve sleeve. yeah he shows up in this fantasy sequence with his whole arm tattooed which i laughed out loud uh, with my headsets on, much to the dismay of my coworkers who were not watching the film. Uh, they didn't really know what I was doing. But it's a wonderful film. Is there a whole circuit of gay-oriented film festivals around the country? Is there a wide range of exposure for this kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's essentially how I got exposure for really those three films, which I should add are, are now available on Vimeo. If people want to want to download them, to, you could rent or you could buy them. But it's a buck ninety nine. There you go. You, you could submit a short film or a feature length film to any film festival. If it's great, like the current film, Call Me By Your Name, it's going to get lots of exposure everywhere. But there are so many films made by uh, LGBT filmmakers that really speak to their own voices and their own experiences. Almost every city in the U.S. has an LGBT film festival. Almost every major city. I mean, including and some little ones too. And some, some little, yeah, some. We there, o- Oklahoma the, the last, has a really small they do. Town. Yeah, Oklahoma the last, had one. Yeah, last hmm. film that I did counting, it played in Oklahoma. It played in uh, two festivals in Texas. It played in Florida, North Carolina, internationally and too. And then, and it's not only in the U.S. I mean, you could find these LGBT festivals all over the world. As a filmmaker, you have to decide. Okay, how many of these am I going to submit to? Because you you do have to submit. And you have to usually pay a submission fee, so you don't want to overdo it because you can easily spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars really? doing it. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's, a, it's an amazing circuit, and it's a great way to meet other filmmakers. It's a great way to get to see other films within that particular arena of LGBT films. The weekend we went to, we went to New York, where I was playing at the New York LGBT Film Festival, 
to completely sold out crowds, which was fantastic. It was also playing that same weekend in Atlanta and in Washington, D.C. Counting is the film that I directed that was produced by Pride Films and Plays. It was written by a woman by the name of Carrie Morris, who is part of our writer's network. It was a script that I had read, and I said, oh, this is the one that's that speaks to me the most. So you made this film. You, d- you didn't write this film. I, so you were counting, not the screenwriter. Right. Counting is one that I, I just directed and produced. Nelson, do you, have you seen uh-huh. Counting? I have. I've seen it a tell few a, times. Tell us a little bit about the story. So in Counting, we see um, two young women sitting in the park, seemingly just friends, right? Um, having a casual how, how interaction. How 20s, maybe? Uh, early 20s, yes. Mm-hmm. And then we... Under 30. Under 30. (laughs) But only two under 30 in this one. And it's in the early... Early Early 50s. Yeah, early Early 50s. Early 1950s, I see. Yes, thank you. And it's in the early 50s. And as their conversation progresses, we realize that they're a couple and that they hope to one day be able to get married. Well, one of them really hopes to one day be able to get married and the other one is saying, no, that's absolutely impossible. Skip right. forward to, well, how many spoil- spoilers? We don't want to, well, we you don't want to give too much away, say, but that's the setup, we'll right? We'll just say that it, we, we, we jump ahead then to the year when gay marriage becomes legal in, in the U.S. And uh, we essentially see what the status is of that particular um, relationship some, you know, 60 years later. And there's a, there's a penny involved in this some, some way that I've seen on the trailer. You you see in the opening scene of the film that they they make a bet essentially that they'll they'll start saving you know two pennies a day so that eventually they'll be able to afford either a marriage license or one of the characters says or a Cadillac that's probably you know more realistic <laughs> yeah, um, exactly and so yeah so they, yeah. the idea is that they start saving or counting pennies it's, it's a, a beautiful it, film it's a beautiful film and it, it's been one of the most rewarding experiences to be a, a part of because I get such great feedback from people who see it and inevitably people are crying at the end but it doesn't only just play at LGBT film festivals tell them about uh, Santa Fe that invited them to show it yeah in February it's going to be opening at the Santa Fe Film Festival which is uh, essentially they play a variety of of films but it's going to be the the short film that plays before a feature directed by Melanie Mayron does that name sound familiar to any of you 30 something fans yes before Yes. Nelson. <laughs> anyway, she directed a film. She played the sister she of Ken the Olin. Sister. That's right. There you go. She's directed a film, so Counting is going to be the short that's going to play before her film, which is really exciting. Wonderful. Is it available to be purchased? Is it on the Vimeo now, or is mm. it just too early? Because it's it, still on the circuit. Yeah, it's it's still it's still too early. It's I think it's going to be finishing up its run within the next couple of months, and then Pride Films and Plays, you know, we'll make a decision as to what we want to do with it. If we want to sell it, if we want to rent it, or we want to put it on one of those sites that David Zag said that didn't have any good LGBT films that so, we so talked Nelson, about earlier. This was, this was produced by uh, Pride Films and Plays. It was, yes. Yeah, but, trying to get the word out, really, about Pride Films and Plays, so that if the film plays in you know New York, in L.A., it, you know, this is a chance for Pride Films and Plays to essentially be known around the world. So. And whenever a filmmaker goes to a festival, they usually do a QA and a with them afterwards, and Dan has always mentioned Pride Films and Plays. It sounds like a wonderful organization, and I'm just beginning to get familiar with it. Congratulations on counting, and I look forward to seeing that. You need somebody with deep pockets to start we funding do. these things, like Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> That's well, right. he's called. I haven't taken his call yet, but... Speaking of, earlier this month, a dog ran amok at Andrew Lloyd Webber's cats. 
I should tell you this story. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> Spies at the Neil Simon Theater tell us an audience member's service dog got away from its owner and ran after the character called Bombalurina. <laughs> this is performed by actress Mackenzie Warren. It was during the opening number. Clearly, that's when the cats are prowling through the audience. And uh-huh. uh, luckily, a fast-moving usher intervened and returned the wayward canine to its mortified owner. Spokesperson for the mega musical confirmed the incident, adding, "In the storied history of cats, this is the first time one of the actual cats was involved in an incident with a dog." We're <laughs> pleased to report that no animals or humans were harmed during this dust-up. Good uh, cats. Cats is closing tomorrow, as of this recording on uh. Broadway. Uh, so it will be closed by the time you actually hear this. Mm. I was trying to think of other musicals where a service dog might run amok. I can only think of two, Frank. Annie right. and Gypsy when the lamb comes out. <laughs> oh, right, right. Are yeah. there other musicals where a cat or something is involved? Oh, is, there an, is there an animal in MAME, Dan? Well, the one I was thinking of is, is the uh, Martin McDonough play. The uh, Lieutenant of Inishmore. Lieutenant, Lieutenant yeah, Lieutenant yeah. of Inishmore. Which there is a cat in that, incredible. although it only is, has a small Yes, part There of is the a end. cat that comes out in there that play. Is, yeah. yeah. And there's also in the play Talking With, I had a friend who was directing that, and her cat had been in all the rehearsals and had been in the first few performances. And in one of the most important performances, the cat decided eh, she'd had enough and j- jumped out of the person's arms and ran off the stage onto my friend's lap. So, <laughs> Diva. Diva yeah. cats. They are. You recently, Frank, taught a class, I hear, about I Love Lucy. I did. To some high school students. I did. Well, not just that, but I used to teach a class at College of DuPage on early situation comedy, and I used I Love Lucy as the template because that kind of started it all. And it was when I taught at Fenton High School, where I met certain people in this room. Mm -hmm. But I used to teach there from 74 to 79, and a person I've gotten to know quite well is now the drama director there, and they're teaching a class. It's an English history class where they do American studies, and they were doing something on the 1950s comedy, and he knew that I had done the I Love Lucy. So I went back to my old haunts, got to teach at Fenton High School two hour and a half classes and talk about that particular show and the significance of it. So what sort of secrets did you share with the students uh, about I Love Lucy? Obviously, it was one of the first scripted television comedies. It was one of the first shows to be shot on 35-millimeter film. Correct, correct. One of the first shows to use multiple cameras. Correct, absolutely. Um, And one of the first shows to actually depict a pregnant woman on live television and filmed in front of a live studio audience. Yeah. What other kinds of things were you able to well, first relate of all, to them? everything I told them were secrets because these kids were like juniors in high school and a lot really? of them did not know the show. And so it was really fun. I played two episodes. People are probably familiar with the Vitamina Vegemint sequence. I played that. And then the job switching, which goes into the candy factory. And it was really fun to watch young people seeing it for the first time. We talked about you know why it was shot on 35-millimeter film because they wanted them to move to New York to do the show live, all the shows in 1950 and 51 were done live, but they were done on the East Coast. That way they could broadcast them live east of the Mississippi. They did not have a cable going through the Mississippi at the time, so everyone on the West Coast had to watch it on Kinetoscope, which is where they took a film 
into the monitor and had this grainy and like filmed the filmed film the, the film exactly. or the monitor exactly. right but I Love Lucy was was filmed in California well they said when are you moving to New York and Lucy and Desi said well the whole point because she had a fight to get Desi to be her husband they did not want it because it was a mixed marriage on the show but they'd been married for a number they'd been of married years, for years you know? and they said that they said no one will believe you're married it's like they know us we are married I mean they were a famous couple so they actually debuted a little uh, vaudeville show at the Chicago Theater to show that people would accept them on television and it was a huge hit and so they got to do it but the idea was they could live in their home and uh, you know she had been making movies all these years he had been a band leader Lucy says that uh, we were married 10 years and we're together one so -hmm. this was her way of getting them home and all of a sudden they said you have to move to New York they're like no that's not the point so Desi came up with the idea to shoot it on 35 millimeter film so that they could then broadcast it from New York broadcast from California it didn't matter CBS balked because it was going to cost more money Lucy and Desi said, okay, we'll pay for it in exchange for 100% ownership of the show. And CBS said, fine. We don't even know what that is. Fine. No problem. Which, of course, became, you know, the Desi Lou Empire, you know. Empire, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And also invented the rerun when a year later they were paid thousands and thousands of dollars more than they were originally paid just to show an episode that they'd they'd already shot. They did reruns when Lucy took a leave to have her baby. They did, but they did reruns right away, like the second year. People were starting to buy televisions and they all wanted to watch this I Love Lucy thing. And so they started, you know, thinking, why don't we just play one of the ones that we already had to plug in certain weeks? Nelson, are you an I Love Lucy fan? Are you, have you become familiar with the show in reruns or syndication over the years? <laughs> Unfortunately not. Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> What's so funny is Frank was talking about, he was teaching these these high school kids, and most of those students didn't really know I Love Lucy either. I mean, I'm, Nelson knows I, I Love know Lucy, but it. hasn't really watched the show. But I also taught a course at DePaul this fall, which was Foundations of Television. And I showed the Candy Factory episode and they, they kind of got it and they understood it but somebody mentioned oh well you know this reminds us of an episode of drake and josh so apparently there was some nickelodeon show that was big in the early 2000s that everybody apparently under the age of 25 maybe Nelson? How do you even know it i don't I've know i've never heard of it had no. an episode called i love sushi where drake and josh <laughs> are trying to you know make sushi on a conveyor belt and it's totally taken from the I Love Lucy episode. So I think Frank had the same experience as I I did, did. where like the students, they knew Drake and Josh. And and then, oh, that's where that came from. Yeah, as soon as that sequence started playing, you could see them all going like, oh, oh. Then afterwards, I said, do you guys know Drake and Josh? And to a person, they were like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And if you watch (laughs) that episode closely, they are doing sushi at Lucy and Ethel's Sushi Factory or something like that. (laughs) So it's not coincidental at all. I mentioned uh, at the top of the show, Dan, when uh, I was introducing you to our listeners that you are also a film professor. What is your area of expertise in teaching film? You know, I teach a little bit of everything. I I teach at DePaul. I also teach at Moraine Valley Community College. And and in the latter, it's more introductory courses like introduction film, essentially film appreciation and uh, history of film. DePaul tends to be a little more specialized and I teach courses in everything from film philosophy to screenwriting. I've taught a number of courses on individual directors. So I've taught courses on Woody Allen and Hitchcock and Paul Thomas Anderson and the Coen brothers. I studied at University of Chicago and, and it was very sort of this sort of scholarly, auteur-driven approach to, to mm. 
mm. film. And it's been eye-opening ever since then, whenever you know we're in classrooms and we find that people don't know about a lot of sort of the older films or television shows and they have to you know make references to Drake and Josh and other things. So I kind of cover a wide variety of areas. They asked me to teach something, I'll teach it. Within reason. Good for you. <laughs> we uh, mentioned Barbara Cook a little while ago and that she had left us as this is our final show of 2017, I wanted to just recap a few other people that we lost throughout Mm. the year. William Peter Blatty, his most famous novel is, of course, The Exorcist. Mm. Uh, He passed this year. In terms of stage and screen, John Hurt, Mary Tyler Moore. We lost Don Rickles. We lost Aaron Moran, who played Joni Cunningham on Mm. Happy Days. The director, Jonathan Demme, ever teach a course about his work? I haven't, but I've shown his work, yeah. Debonair British actor Roger Moore, Adam West, uh, the star of the TV series Batman, Martin Landau, probably one of the great film character actors of all time. Love him in North by Northwest. He's just... Ed Wood, he won his Oscar for Ed Wood. He's hilarious. Ed Ed Wood, he's hilarious Mm -hmm. in, absolutely. Someone that many people won't know, but June Foray passed away. She was the virtuoso cartoon voice Mm -hmm. of Cindy Lou Who and Rocky the Flying Squirrel. She actually played Rocky. And that makes perfect sense. She was 99. Right. 99 years old. She was Rocky and Natasha. Recently, (laughs) we lost Sam Shepard. Dick Gregory passed away. Jerry Lewis, of course. And just yesterday, Rosemary. Here's a funny story about that. (laughs) Not that there's anything funny about (laughs) Rosemary passing. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about the quality of DVDs now and that Blu-ray is so much better than the DVD. And then 4K is so much better than than anything you could possibly see. And I don't know what the next thing is going to be, 16K. And I keep thinking, just because you can make something look like that, should you make something look like that? And one of the things, here's my point, if I can get to it. One of the things I was thinking was, well, for instance, would I find the Dick Van Dyke show any funnier in color if, if I knew that Sally was wearing a yellow dress? <laughs> I actually said this yesterday, and then today in the paper I read that she Well, they did passed. that. They just broadcast. Did you watch them, the Dick Van Dyke shows I did, in color? I did not, but that's what brought it to mind. Yeah. They, they did them in yeah. color. Does it matter that the ottoman is brown? It doesn't matter, I don't think, but I think it appeals to a younger audience. They've been doing the I Love Lucy's every year the last five or six years. They show the the Christmas one, which they colorized, and then they add another episode. And I think it's to make it more accessible to to young people. You're of the younger generation. Do you think these shows are better, (laughs) Nelson, in color? I don't think so. I mean, I've, I've never been turned off by something being in black and white or being in color. But I we just teach film it. students yeah. and they often are like, oh my God, it's in black and white. I couldn't believe it. I'll never relate to really? that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, they hate no, it. They, yeah, <laughs> but they're also 18 or something. I mean, probably when they get to be even Nelson's age, they will have much more of appreciation of the black and white. Hopefully, yeah, they will. Mm-hmm. We also lost to Roberta Peters, the Bronx-born soprano who sang at the Metropolitan Opera for 30 years, Al Jarreau, Chuck Berry, Glenn Campbell, of course, mm. and in the sports world, Jake LaMotta, Mm-hmm. Um, right. Speaking of black and white films, Raging Bull was about Jake LaMotta's life, scrappy middleweight, Fats Domino, and a couple of people that we actually did as our Kiss of Death segment. Oh. I'll just mention them. <laughs> Sheila Michaels, the feminist who encouraged women to adopt the honorific Ms. 
in uh-huh. writing uh-huh. and in speaking. Right. And a gentleman named Arthur Janoff, he was the psychiatrist who urged his patients to let it all out and overcome childhood traumas with the primal scream, uh-huh. primal scream therapy. Right. <laughs> Where, Nelson, can we find out more information about Pride Films and Plays and the Pride Art Center. Sure. On our website, um, it's pretty easy to find. It's www.pridefilmsandplays.com. That's and pride and the word and films and plays? Correct. No, pride films. Pride and, films and, and plays. And plays. And plays. No, pride and films and plays. Now, now you've really confused our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and plays. And where else? And then stopping by at Pride Art Center. So we have productions going continuously from either tenants or from our own company members that have self-produced uh, pieces. And then, of course, our four-show season. Oh, you rent your space out as well? Do you correct. rent the theater spaces? Yes, correct. Uh, do you have criteria for someone renting? Do they have to present a, a sort of LBGT plus oriented type of production? Or do you allow other things? All kinds of subject matter are, Everyone's are welcome. welcome. Everyone's welcome, as long as the values of the piece coincide with ours, which doesn't necessarily just mean LGBTQ+. It can be anything, but as long as it's a piece that represents inclusion and diversity, uh, diversity yeah. and inclusion. Right. Right. Well, if you like what you hear, speaking of websites on Booth One, you can uh, support our efforts in bringing you the finest in the art of lively conversation and scintillating guests like Dan and Nelson by going to our website at www.booth-one.com. Did you want to add anything to that, Frank? I got that one the first time. (laughs) (laughs) And click on the donate button. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax deductible. You might want to do it right before the first of the... Oh, they're not going to hear this till after the first of the year. An early tax-deductible donation. Any contribution would be greatly appreciated. Dan, where can we find out more about you and your films? I do have a website, palcinema.com, that has links to um, some of my work and uh, how to find some of my work. P-A-L-Cinema.com. That is correct. And Pride Films and Plays is also a... Nonprofit, non-profit organization, right. so yes. one can go to that website, Pride Films and Plays, and also donate uh, through that, correct? Correct. You can donate, and we also have something called the Wilson Society, and the Wilson Society is recurring donations once a month, and it can be anything from $5 to $5,000 if so, um, and it helps with everything from bringing our productions to life to keeping Pride Arts Center running on a day-to-day basis, bills and lights, it all adds up, so Anything you want to give to Pride Films and Plays or Pride Art Center, we welcome it. Awesome. I hope our listeners will take advantage of that. Well, as our final kiss of death for the year, and we always finish our show with one, as you know, Frank. I do. I don't like the, that those eye movements. I'm not sure what you're saying. <laughs> well, it's always fun to talk about the kiss of death at the end. So. <laughs> it's a tribute. It is. It is. We're going to talk about Johnny Fox. Any of you know who Johnny Fox is? I don't. Johnny Fox was a showman with a taste for the macabre and an appetite for swords. I know, this is an odd one. Though Mr. Fox's array of talents included sleight of hand and hammering a spike into his nose. Those those are a couple of your talents too, Frank. Uh, Yeah, I don't do them that often anymore. (laughs) He was best known for sword swallowing, a skill he displayed all over the country. Uh, From 1999 to 2005, he also ran a small museum on New York's Lower East Side called the Freakatorium uh, that harbored artifacts including clothing worn by Tom Thumb, P.T. Barnum's 
this performer, a, a mummified cat said to be from an Egyptian tomb. And oh. This is so freaky out there. A glass eye that supposedly belonged to Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, God. <laughs> I wonder if it's signed. Yeah. <laughs> and how he got it. Well, yeah. And, how he got and was it signed? What's Sammy Davis yeah. using? <laughs> really? Yeah. The museum and Mr. Fox's stage act were predicated on the same belief as he used to tell audiences before swallowing a ridiculously long sword. It's gross, but you'll watch. (laughs) When he was a boy, his father took him to the Eastern States Exposition in West Springfield, Massachusetts, where he saw his first sword swallower. Not long after that, his father gave him a book about Harry Houdini. Mm. Isn't that always how it starts? Of course. These tricksters <laughs> that described other swallowing tricks. And at dinner one night, young Johnny swallowed a strand of spaghetti and then pulled it back up his throat. <laughs> My dad said, you're excused. You can leave the table. (laughs) He recalled later in an interview, Mr. Fox eventually created a magic and comedy act, which he performed at fairs and sidewalk shows. He added flashier stunts like fire eating to attract crowds. And in 1978, he trained himself to swallow swords, spending eight months perfecting the art before showing it to audiences. I'm not going to tell you what he says about how you should prepare yourself for swallowing a sword. I (laughs) I think I think it borders on the profane. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but he made several television appearances, including, and you uh, you may remember this. I do remember this. Uh, a commercial for Maalox. Did he swallow it, or what did he do with the Maalox? Are you like me? He says in the commercial as he smashes a light bulb with a hammer. Oh. Do you occasionally eat things you don't agree with? And then he proceeds to eat the shards of glass. Uh, Do you not remember this commercial? Uh, no, I would have loved it, probably, but I don't <laughs> a remember A fantastic Maalox commercial. A jeweled Smith, president and general manager of the Maryland Renaissance Festival, said Mr. Fox always performed outdoors in the daylight rather than in a theater so that he could see the members of the audience and enjoy their reactions, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, he had a large collection of odd memorabilia at the Freakatorium, and the $5 admission fee and the limited amount of traffic, however, were not enough to keep the museum going in a rapidly gentrifying no. neighborhood. Well, you know, the Lower East Side is now almost unaffordable. Right. Well, I think it is unaffordable. Right. I not remember almost, the last time right. you've been there. Had he chose to, Mr. Fox could certainly have paid bills through pickpocketing. At the <laughs> end of his shows, he would invite an audience member to come pull the grand finale sword out of his mouth. I have a present for you helping me out, he would tell the dragooned assistant after the sword was disgorged. This is an awfully nice watch. Well, it was the person's own watch, which he had pilfered from them as they were pulling the sword out. Johnny Fox, sword-swallowing showman, dies at 64. If you want to read the full obituary, you can go again to our website at www.booth-one.com and uh, we always have uh, show notes listed there. And you can click on and read the full obituaries from the Washington Post and the New York Times and uh, Variety. I was just curious if they found an old shard of glass like in his pancreas or something from the Malox commercial. Nurse, come here! You want to see a sword (laughs) in someone's (laughs) stomach? Yeah, Yeah, it's it's possible. That is not what he passed away okay. from. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you gentlemen on the show today. Thank you, Gary. Uh, we're Thank in you. the process of renovating our website to make it easier for our listeners to comment and to send us feedback. So watch for those new changes if yes, you go. Yes, absolutely. 
for Booth One, my co-host Frank Taranjo. Thank you, Frank. And oh, my guests, Dan Powell and Nelson Rodriguez. This is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening. Keep listening.